the National Archives podcast series, An Impenetrable Tangle or an Underused Mine of Information, The Court of Common Pleas and Its Records, circa 1200 to 1875, presented by James Ross. The records of the Court of Common Pleas are among the least used and least understood records in the National Archives. There are some good reasons for this. There are a lot of records for the court. There are 61 series of common pleas records under the departmental code CP, 11 of which are unsorted. Many of the documents um, themselves are huge and extremely difficult to handle. They are in Latin until 1733, with the brief exception of the, the Commonwealth period. There's a real lack of finding aids to these records. There's very few for the medieval period, and for the early modern period, they are, there are some contemporary ones, but again, they take a little bit of getting used to. The records themselves can also be quite formulaic, and many cases never came to a verdict. Yet, the records of the Court of Common Pleas are a mine of useful information. Because it was the busiest central court for almost all the medieval and early modern period, there are consistently more people named in the records of the Common Pleas than any other medieval or early modern source, with the possible exception of the half tax in the 1660s. This makes them a wonderful source to um, trace individuals. But they're not just a good source for presbyographical or genealogical research. They can be used to study many other aspects of social um, and economic history, trade and mercantile business, um, law and its impact on society, and specific places um, in the town and the country. And the structure of the records, um, to some extent, mitigates bulk um, and language issues, and I will talk a little bit later um, about the structure. This will be a talk of two halves. The first will be um, some background to the court um, over the seven centuries of existence, a little bit of its history, and the second half of the talk will be on the records um, themselves and how to approach them. So, a little bit on, on the history of the court. The beginnings um, of the Court of Common Pleas can be found in the later 12th century. A central royal court sitting at Westminster for four terms in the year and enrolling its proceedings was in existence during the closing years of Henry II's reign in the 1180s. It was clearly separate from other royal courts by the 1190s. Its earliest surviving plea roll dates the Trinity term of 1194. But it briefly ceased to exist as a separate entity between 1209 and 1214 during the reign of King John, when it was subsumed within the king's personal jurisdiction and the cases it heard or it had been hearing instead fo followed the king himself who moved around his kingdom on a regular basis. And this was a considerable hardship for ordinary plaintiffs and defendants alike who had to travel long distances just to keep up with the itinerant royal court. Thus, in the great um, reaction against um, John's kingship or Andrewing kingship, Magna Carta in 1215, in Clause 17, King John agreed that common pleas shall not follow our court, but shall be held in some certain place. Thereafter, its sessions were normally held at Westminster, although um, it, they could be held elsewhere. 
Um, there were sessions held at Shrewsbury during Edward I's Welsh Wars and on many occasions at York during the Scottish Wars of Edward I, Edward II and Edward III. After that date, however, sessions did tend to be fixed at Westminster um, and were held until 1875, broken only by very occasional civil disturbance or plague. For the period 1194 to 1272, the records of common pleas are in fact mixed up with King's Bench um, and indeed some local jurisdictions, the Court of King's Bench and some local jurisdictions, in the series KB 26. Now these records are nearly all in print until 1249 in a publication called the Curia Regis Rolls. But business in the Court of um, Common Pleas remained comparatively low, though it did slowly increase during much of the 13th century. Nonetheless, this is the period in which it's the court's jurisdiction um, became um, finalised. It dealt with, obviously, common pleas, and these are suits between one subject and another subject, Smith against Jones, and did not involve um, the, king's, um, direct, um, the king's direct interests. It had a wide-ranging jurisdiction, the court dealt with cases of what is known as real property. That's actually land. Cases, so cases relating to possession and ownership of land, what's on the land, things like woodland, um, and what was under the land, so mineral rights and things like that. It dealt with cases of debt. Now, these had to be more than 40 shillings um, to avoid too many very small um, claims in the court. But nonetheless... Um, this was a huge area of its business, and perhaps two-thirds of all cases in common pleas in the 15th century were cases of debt. It had jurisdiction over debtenue, which is the return of specific goods wrongly retained or their equivalent value. It dealt with cases of account, um, which is an action brought for not rendering a proper account of profits, i.e. by uh, a steward of, or, or uh, an official, or indeed between commercial partners. The court had jurisdiction over covenant, which is the breach of an agreement, particularly one relating to a written obligation. And the Court of Common Pleas had supervision over all inferior courts in these areas. It also had um, joint jurisdiction over trespass, which are minor criminal actions. This jurisdiction was shared with the Court of King's Bench, which was the senior criminal court. Felony, the serious criminal actions, could only be heard by King's Bench from the 14th century, but minor criminal actions, trespass, could be heard by common pleas or King's Bench. Taken together, these areas, property, debt, commercial cases and minor criminal actions, it's a huge area of the law. And this accounts for the fact that common pleas was much the busiest court by the end of the Middle Ages. In 1450, Common Pleas was, holding, was hearing about 10,000 cases per year. King's Bench, perhaps 2,000, 2,500. The Exchequer of Pleas, which was a financial court, was holding about 250 cases a year. And the emergent jurisdiction of the Court of Chancery was still very much in its early stages and held about 100, heard about 120 cases in a year. So Common Pleas was by far the busiest court. But the very high level of business meant jealousy from the other courts and the beginning of competition. Such competition between the courts was very real, not least because the income of the officials from clerks or judges was in a greater part dependent on the fees they received from litigants. So the more cases you heard, the wealthier you were. 
And it was as late as 1825 before judges, for example, were paid only by salary as opposed to partly through the profits of the court. So the competition was, was real and it meant quite a lot to those involved. The main competition initially came from the court of King's Bench. In 1421, King's Bench finally settled in a fixed location, Westminster Hall. This meant it actually became the court of first instance for Middlesex for cases of trespass and debt. So it was a local court for Middlesex as well as a central criminal court for the whole country. And during the 15th century, King's Bench developed what is known as the Bill of Middlesex. Plaintiffs began a fictitious case alleging a trespass began in Middlesex. This, course, brought it straight to King's Bench. Once um, you know, the defendant was arrested or, or was brought into court, a writ known as a latitat was issued which contained the correct or genuine details of the case set, stating, you know, actually it happened in Essex or Herefordshire or Lincolnshire or wherever it be. But by this, by this means, by, by the Bill of Middlesex, numerous long and expensive stages of the legal process were skipped and the case was immediately heard in a central court. This became very popular and King's Bench actually stole a considerable proportion of the business of common pleas. But the encroachment of King's Bench onto common pleas business was in part masked by the vast explosion of litigation in the late 16th and the 17th centuries. Hard figures are, hard, uh, uh, are difficult to come by, but in 1610 there were perhaps 40,000 cases a year heard in common pleas, so this has increased fourfold from the late 15th century. King's Bench was perhaps hearing 20 to 25,000 cases per year, so that's a tenfold increase. Stoker Pleas stole um, a, a, a small um, amount of business, it had 548 cases that year, and Chancery was hearing just under 5,000 cases in 1610, so it increased hugely but was still considerably less busy than the common law courts of King's Bench and Common Pleas. King's Bench, however, was not the only competitor. Legislation had been passed as early as 1284 to prevent the Exchequer of Pleas um, from hearing common pleas. And this meant the business of the Exchequer of Pleas was very small until the 17th century. But it began to develop a writ called Quominus or Quominus, in which a royal debtor or Exchequer official might sue or be sued in the, in the Exchequer on the grounds that he might otherwise be able, so much the less, quominus, to discharge his revenue obligations to the Crown. But the application of this writ became increasingly loose. Almost anyone came to be able to sue in the Exchequer of Pleas, as virtually any action with financial ramifications would be accepted as having potential revenue implications for the Crown. So it also started to encroach on the normal business of common pleas, particularly debt cases. By 1823, the competition had seriously impacted on common pleas business. In that year, common pleas held 13,000 cases, King's Bench 43,500 cases, the Exchequer of Pleas had increased to nearly 7,000 cases a year from just 548 in 1610, and the Court of Chancery was also operating um, at around 6,000 cases per year, so again considerably smaller but common places are no longer the busiest court. In 1828, Henry Brougham, Lord Chancellor, 
told the House of Commons that the jurisdiction of the three main courts of common law was virtually coextensive. King's Bench, he said, has drawn over to itself actions which really belong to the Court of Common Pleas. The Exchequer has, by means of another fiction, opened its doors to every suit and so has drawn to itself the right of trying cases that were never placed within its jurisdiction. And he also noted that King's Bench was immoderately overburdened with, um, by the number of cases. In response to complaints such as this, and the report of a committee investigating the slow pace of the Court of Chancery, the Judicature Commission was formed in 1867 and given a wide remit to investigate um, the reform of the courts, the law and the legal profession. The result was the Supreme Court of Judicature Act of 1873, which merged the Common Pleas, the Exchequer of Pleas, King's Bench and the Court of Chancery into one body, the High Court of Justice, and, its, and the Common Pleas' existence as a separate court was ended. To the second part of the talk, um, and that's a brief look at the records of the Court of Common Pleas that survive here in the National Archives. To begin with, though, a few words on terminology. The main series of records of the Court of Common Pleas, um, which I will be concentrating on today, are the plea rolls. These are in the National Archives series CP40. They are occasionally known by their old Latin name, the Debanco Rolls. They are made up of hundreds of sheets of parchment sewn together at one end. Each one is known individually as Rochulus and in plural as Rochuli. These are not actually technically membranes, um, which are sewn, uh, a single membrane is sewn together at both ends. The main series of records, the plea rolls, are in the National Archives series CP40 from 1273 to 1874. They are arranged by legal term, Michaelmas, Hillary, Easter and Trinity, and then by a regnal year. For the medieval period, there is one CP40 per term, containing up to 600 rotuli. For the early modern period, there are perhaps six or seven um, certainly by the 17th century, there were six or seven by, by, um, per term, containing probably in excess of 3,000 rotuli. These records can be browsed through the National Archives online catalogue to identify which term and year um, each one relates to. But the catalogue contains no details at all of any cases contained within any of the plea rolls. You cannot search by county or plaintiff or defendant. So what do the plea rolls in the series CP40 contain? There are four distinct types of material, the first two comprising 95% of any given roll. The four types are mean process, pleading, enrolled private deeds and a list of the attorneys. I shall deal with these in a little bit more detail. The first section then is what is known as mean process and this is procedural information. More precisely, it's copies of writs issued during proceedings and writs were issued at every stage of the judicial process. For example, a writ would be issued to a sheriff to ensure a defendant was in court to hear, to hear the accusations against him. A writ would be issued to the sheriff to um, impanel a jury of 12 local men to decide a case. And it's this that's written up onto the plea roll. 
Mean process is formulaic and will not tell you a great deal about the case, but it can be useful, and particularly for much of the medieval period, when there are no real finding aids. You often need to follow the process of a case to work out what actually happened or where the pleadings will be. The process, the mean process, was written by officials called phyllises. These are officers of the court who filed and wrote up these writs. Their names are at the bottom of each rotulate, and as each phyllisa deals with the same few counties, it can be quite a shortcut to, once you've worked out which phyllisa is dealing with the county you're interested in, to flick through and look for the relevant phyllisa's name at the bottom of each membrane. The second type of material, and certainly the most interesting for researchers, are the pleadings. Unfortunately, the plea rolls, the CP40s, do not contain word-for-word transcripts of what happened in court or what was said in court. They are summaries of the legal arguments used by the plaintiffs and the defendants. Although pleadings may have occupied several court hearings um, over several legal terms, usually the full pleading of the case will only appear once in the main plea roll normally the first time the legal argument is set out, which means you normally only need to look for one set of, for for, for the pleading once. Where a verdict was reached, it it will usually be entered after the main pleading and was written up there months, perhaps years later. The pleadings are written um, in the name of um, one of the protonoatries, principal notary, if you like, who are the chief clerks of the court. There are two before 1461 and three afterwards. The third and fourth sections of any plea roll are much, much shorter. Um, They will contain a few private property deeds, um, which enrolled right at the end, almost at the end of the roll. These are on the roll during during the medieval period and up till 1583, after which they're hived off to to a different record, which I'll come back to later. The last section is a list of the attorneys who appeared in the court and the parties they appeared on behalf of. So if you're looking for a lawyer um, or the career of a lawyer, that's quite a useful section. The records themselves are arranged roughly chronologically within the term, so by specific days um, within the term. But this means they're not arranged by county or by type of business. Mean process alternates with pleadings throughout the document, and if you're looking for county, there is no separate section for Essex or Norfolk or Yorkshire. However, certainly from about 1400, there's a fairly fixed structure to the role, and this does make it a little bit easier to navigate around. The first 22 rotulae, one, each one will be written by each of the phyllises, protonotary and other officials of the court. So you will see the first 22 will have all the names of the people who are writing the rest of the roll. Rotulae 23 to 100 will contain mean process. Rotulae 101 to 120 will contain pleadings written by the first protonotary. 121 to 140 by the second protonotary, and after 1461, when there's a third protonotary, roughly 141 to 160 
will contain 20 rochley of pleadings by, uh, written up by that proto-notary. Rochley 160 to 300 will be process. 301 to 360 will be more, it will be 20 rots each by the three proto-notaries. 360 to 400 will be more process. 401 to 460, 501 to 560, and so on will be the proto-notaries sections. The last, the, the last two sections, the charter rolls, uh, the, the, the rots for the charters, um, and the Rochley for the attorneys will be the last two sections at the end. So it is possible to work out where, if you're looking for specific pleadings, where you need to go within the role. Each pleading will look rather longer than the process and, and visually is slightly different. The county will always be in the left-hand margin. The first few words will almost always be the defendant's name with his place of residence and his occupation. And, he, and it will then note he's been summoned into court or arrested to respond to the plaintiff whose name will follow. Um, and then a brief description of the, the type of case, so a debt case or a trespass or something like that. The next section will contain the plaintiff's accusation. A separate paragraph will follow with the defendant's response to the plaintiff's accusations and the plaintiff will usually then have another paragraph where he counters the defendant's arguments. This can go on for some time. The last bit of any given pleading will contain notes of the further legal proceedings, how long it's been postponed for, when a jury was summoned, and the verdict will be written up there if one was reached. So again, it's quite quick to find this, the relevant information and to work out who is involved in a case. It's always in the first two or three lines. I'm now going to take a few um, sample cases from um, across the period of the court's existence just to give a flavour of the types of cases the court heard. My first example comes from the Trinity term of 1462 and there are two cases on two successive rotuli. On the first, John Bishop of Worcester sues the Barclay family, Lords Barclay, over their occupation of a water mill in Gloucestershire. The Barclays respond, claiming that the mill is parcel of their manor of King's Weston and doesn't belong to the bishop. The following, Rochley, a separate case. John Bishop of Worcester sues the Barclays again, claiming they entered and hunted in his park at Westbury in Gloucestershire, which they had no leave to do. The Barclays make their response saying that the bishop gave them licence to hunt in this manner. Neither case reaches a verdict, but it's clearly part of a wider dispute between two powerful landowners, and it, they've chosen for this part of it to fight it out in court. They may well have fought it out in person elsewhere. But it wasn't just the high and mighty who used um, the Court of Common Pleas. In the same term, Trinity 1462, one Robert Porter of CERN in Dorset, who's a husbandman, a labourer, um, is arrested um, to respond to one John Hipwell of a, tree, of a plea of trespass. And John Hipwell claims that Robert Porter, with force and arms, viz, sword, bow and arrows, 
broke into and entered the close house of John Hitwell at Abbotsbury. And there he stole four bulls, seven bullocks and seven cows worth a total of £10. And the plaintiff claims £20 in damages. The defendant pleads not guilty to the charges. The case is postponed to the following term. And then the, no- the role notes there were six further postponements. Each case allegedly the, the sheriff didn't return the writs. And then the case disappears. So no verdict was reached and nothing happened. This is not uncommon with medieval pleas. Moving forward in time, and a different type of case, um, in the role for 1603, one Gregory Norfolk, who was a tanner, is, was summoned to respond to William Alston, plaintiff. And Alston claims that Gregory Norfolk rend, uh, owes him a debt of £8. So apparently, on the 5th of August, 1603, Gregory Norfolk agreed an obligation, a contract, with Alston, the plaintiff, that if he paid £4 by a certain date, then a contract would be complete. But if Norfolk didn't pay £4 by a certain date, then he would owe the plaintiff £8, punitive charges, if you like. The plaintiff, Alston, alleges that the £4 was not paid. Defendant Norfolk initially said he had paid it and then later confessed that he hadn't. Norfolk was therefore liable to pay the £8 for the contract and was given damages assessed at £2. So although this is a a complete and self-contained case, it doesn't actually tell us two things. It doesn't tell us what the initial contract was for, commercial dealings or money lending, we don't know. It also doesn't say why Norfolk actually changed his story. But it does give you the whole of the legal proceedings over the case. And to take a a more modern example, and this comes from the Michaelmas term of the fifth year of Queen Victoria's reign, which is 1841. Charles New is the plaintiff, and he has been assigned the goods and effects of Michael Pellet, who was a bankrupt. And Charles New complains by his attorney, George Baldwin, that the defendant, Michael Messenger, had agreed to pay the plaintiff £2,000 as a signee of the bankrupt's goods. But the plaintiff says that Michael Messenger, the defendant, did not carry out this payment. Nine days later, the defendant appears by his attorney, Edward Spencer, and states that he never agreed to pay the plaintiff £2,000. He says that the plaintiff was not the assignee of Pellet's goods and estates, and that's the bankrupt. So that was the 19th of June. The following term, in November 1841, the plaintiff repeats his arguments, appears in court, repeats his arguments, and they both put themselves upon their country, i.e. they submitted to trial by jury. In June 1842, so exactly a year after the first pleading, a jury appears, um, their names are in the role, and they're sworn in. They state that the defendant did agree to play the plaintiff um, as the plaintiff had claimed, that the plaintiff was the assignee of uh, Michael Pellet's, uh, the bankrupt's goods, and they grant the plaintiff costs, damages, and charges. The damages were assessed at £464. The plaintiff's costs were assessed at 40 shillings, and the Crown's costs were assessed at £173, which is quite a substantial amount.
again, we have the whole record of the case. It isn't necessarily terribly informative as precisely why the defendant was paying the plaintiff £2,000. We don't know quite what the background to the case is, but we do have the legal arguments. How then would one try and find a case in the Court of Common Pleas? As I said earlier, they are not searchable on the online catalogue. The sheer number means they have never been fully catalogued. For the medieval period, for the earliest part of the, the court's existence, um, there are published calendars of called the Curia Regis Rolls, which run to 18 volumes. Um, these cover the period up to 1249 and can be found in the National Archives or a good reference library. But for the rest of the medieval period, there is no one comprehensive finding aid. There are some selective calendars. Um, there are some people's notes who have worked on the records extensively. Um, these are in the series IND1 and PRO66. They're patchy. Some cover some dates. Some, don't, some dates aren't covered. One or two uh, are very good on specific counties. There's some, if you're researching Yorkshire, um, there's better finding aids than for elsewhere. But they are quite patchy. For much of the time, it is a case of trawling through the roles covering the period that you are interested in looking for the counties or the person you are interested in. From 1509 through, in fact, to 1859, the situation is somewhat better. There are contemporary docket what are known as docket roles, surviving. These are in the record series um, CP60. And these provide the main means of access to the records. They are brief notes of each case. They, um, they will note the type of case, so a debt. They will have a county in the left-hand margin. The top line will contain the attorney's surname and or the plaintiff's attorney's surname and then the plaintiff's surname. The line below will contain the defendant's attorney's surname and then the defendant's surname. So it's the second set of names that you are looking for if you're chasing an individual. But they will also give you a reference to the Rochelis on which the case is pleaded. So it does give you a specific page number, if you like, to, to take to the CP40. And therefore, searching through these roles is a real shortcut compared to going through the very, very large roles themselves. From the 1560s, there's one of these per protonoetry, so you may need to check two or three to cover all the pleadings in, any, in the court at any given time. But they do provide the primary means of access to the records. These are, as I say, contemporary. They are original documents, and they need to be ordered up at the National Archives, but they're less backbreaking than the CP40s themselves. I'm briefly going to mention two or three other series of common pleas records. One of the sections on the plea rolls are private deeds which are enrolled for a fee on, on the record. And this occurs from the earliest period through to 1583, when they are moved to a separate series CP43 from this date they all the CP43 also contains pleas over land so property disputes effectively 
are moved to a separate series and the, the CP40s contain solely deck cases and some of the contractual material. These include the famous common recoveries, which is a fictitious action by which land could be conveyed to others. There are again contemporary finding aids to these records in, in the series IND1. They never quite reached the, or they never reached the size of the CP40s. The role for Easter 1610 has 180 Rochelle of pleadings and about 30 Rochelle of enrolled private deeds, compared to probably two and a half, three thousand. Rochley in the CP40s. In 1838, the pleas of lands stopped being in the separate series of CP43 and returned to the main series in CP40. For just under a century, 1327 to 1409, royal pleas contain, uh, plea rolls containing royal pleas, um, so where the king has a direct interest, are in a separate series, which is CP23. There's also a very long series of records in the series CP21 from 1272 to 1798 containing essoins, which are notes of the allowable excuses made by litigants for non-attendance in court. For further reading on the court, it's worth mentioning J.H. Baker's An Introduction to English Legal History, which is the, the most accessible summary of English legal history that I am aware of. And there is one book written solely on the Court of Common Pleas by Margaret Hastings, who wrote a book in 1947 called The Court of Common Pleas in 15th Century England, which is a detailed introduction or detailed um, discussion of the court and its officials. Thank you. This podcast was recorded on the 26th of June 2012 at the National Archives, Kew. This podcast is copyright at the National Archives. All rights reserved.